Chapter Eight of the Secret of the Silver Car by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eight. Count Michael Temesvar. Count Michael Temesvar, when he left behind him the great estate where he ruled as absolute and tyrannical master, and came to the fashionable, pleasure-loving London, was a different man. In London, he paid due regard to the conventions and was entertained at great houses and in return offered very splendid receptions to his hosts. Meanwhile, he kept a skilled finger on the hardening arteries of new international affairs. He knew very well that he was suspected of intriguing for monarchial restoration, and the confusion of the country where he was so pleasantly entertained by such men as the Earl of Rosecarrel. But for the main part, England still clung to her habit of disbelieving that a man who could be so charming in society would commit the betise of plotting where he had played. He was particularly interested in the spring automobile show at the Crystal Palace. He had heard a great deal of late of the Lion Motor, and he wanted one. On his first visit to the show, he told the manager that the silver model there exhibited was the one that he would buy. He was annoyed that the firm's representative would not allow it to be taken away until the show finished. On his second visit, he was irritated to find that the manager raised objections about selling it at all. "'You see, sir,' said the manager, "'a car like this demands careful driving and constant attention. Our ordinary model would suit you better.' "'I want this because it is said to be the fastest car in the world,' Count Michael returned. "'To me, the price is nothing.' "'It isn't that at all, sir,' the manager said. "'In confidence, it wouldn't do us any good if your own mechanics got it in such a condition it couldn't do its best work. Bad advertisement, you understand. You think I should have a special chauffeur, then? Good. Send me one. Send three, if necessary. But send me a man who has the nerve to drive along my mountain roads by day or night at any speed I choose. That's a tall order, sir, the manager returned. But I pay... I always pay better than others because I want better work. Count Michael Temesvar beheld a blue-clad mechanic working under a car. He struck him a sharp blow on the leg with his cane. A grimy-faced man emerged, rubbing the bruised limb. You, said the Count peremptorily, can you drive a car like this lion? The man grinned. The idea seemed to tickle him. He spoke with a cockney accent of his kind. "'Me drive a lion,' he said. "'Ask Mr. King here what I can do.' "'I couldn't let him go,' said Mr. King quickly. "'He's my best demonstrator and a wonder at tuning up an engine.' Count Michael ignored the protesting manager. "'What is your wage?' "'I get five pounds a week.' "'I give you ten. "'You are my man. "'You leave for my place in Croatia when the show is over. "'My secretary will see you are looked after.' Serve me well, and you will never regret it. I am generous when I am pleased. He turned to his companion. See that all arrangements are made. If he has a wife and children, bring them, if he desires it. If he will be happier without them, let them remain here. I must have him. He has intelligence and industry. Look you, he's gone back to his work. He loves his engine as a good groom does his horse. The mechanic had indeed crawled again under the huge car. The Count could have added that he was cautious, for he drew his legs well into cover. The Count and the secretary went off. 
The secretary was to call at the office next day and arrange things. The manager was deferential, but when they had left the glass-roofed hall, he permitted himself to laugh. Then he crossed to the car and bent down. "'It's all right, Mr. Trent,' he said. "'They've gone now. You can come out.' Anthony Trent looked up at him and grinned. "'You can always get a job as an actor,' he said. "'Your accent is a bit of all right.' the manager returned, gratified. "'If it's etiquette for a manager to have a drink with a mere oil-stained mechanic as I am, lead on to the nearest place.' "'Well,' said the manager later, "'what do you think of him?' Anthony Trent rubbed his leg. "'He struck me,' said Trent, in a curious, musing way. There was something in his tone which made the manager look at him quickly. Anthony Trent's face was grim and set. "'I don't think he meant it that way,' Mr. King replied. He had visions of assault and battery. "'Some day I shall give him the opportunity to apologize,' said the American. Mr. King had received personal instructions from the chairman of the Lion Motor Limited to obey Mr. Anthony Trent in every particular. Mr. Trent was to be allowed to have the run of the shops, and the most expert mechanics in the firm were to put all they knew at his disposal— Anthony Trent started by giving the manager the best dinner he had ever eaten. Then he coached him in the role of a manager anxious not to lose his best demonstrator. King was delighted that Count Michael walked into the trap set for him eagerly. He liked Trent, but thought poorly of his chances in a tussle with this big girthed foreigner. "'Must be fifty inches round the chest,' he observed, sipping his drink delicately, "'and most of it muscle.' One of the most powerful men I've ever laid eyes on, Mr. Trent. Built like a wrestler. About five feet ten, I judge. A couple of inches less than you, but five stone heavier. What was the big car on the ale opposite us at the show? Trent asked, as King thought, irrelevantly. The Amazon, King answered, scornfully. All varnish and silver plate and upholstery, with a motor that isn't worth a tinker's dam. "'That's like the Count,' Trent smiled. "'Champagne, high living, and general dissipation have made a shell of him. He looks well enough to the eye, like that Amazon car. But call on the motor, and you'll see them both hang out distress signals.' "'Maybe,' King conceded. "'I'll put my bet on a lion,' he smiled in a friendly fashion at the other. "'And the eagle.' They fell to talking technicalities and kept it up till the hour when Michael, Count Temesvar, went to dine at a house in Bruton Street. He told his host that as a compliment to this country, his second home, he had just bought an English car and engaged an English chauffeur. The other guests thought it so broad-minded of him. He further endeared himself to his company by deploring the retirement of his old adversary, that eminent diplomat, the Earl of Rose Carell. His old adversary's occupation at the moment would have surprised him. The Earl was devising an ingenious cipher code, having, it would seem to the uninitiated, the various parts of a lion motor which might need replacing by telegram to the London factory. Anthony Trent would take a copy with him, carefully concealed, and any telegram sent by him to the works would instantly be forwarded to the code's inventor. "'What makes you so cheerful?' his daughter asked as she bade him good-night. "'That amazing American of yours,' he answered. "'Of mine?' she repeated. But even in the grip of her unhappiness, she was not sure that the dim future did not hold some alleviation. 
Few people were more careful of appearances than Anthony Trent. He was always dressed with quiet distinction. In the early days of a profession where it is not well to be too prominent, he chafed at this restraint. Later he saw that it was the sign of sartorial eminence. On assuming the name and characteristics of Alfred Anthony, he also had to dress the part and talk the part. From the man in the line shop he had, with his mimic's cleverness, taken on their peculiar intonations and slang until he certainly could deceive a foreigner. And since he was thorough, he forced himself to smoke the part. He accompanied his great silver car across the channel to Ostend, dressed as the man in the shop dressed, and he moved with their brisk, perky quickness, and he alternated between shag in a bulldog pipe and woodbine cigarettes. He was glad that Mr. Hensey, the Count's secretary, observed his altercation at the Belgian port with a customs official who made him pay duty on an excess number of cigarettes. "'Ah!' said Mr. Hensey, with condescension. "'The cigarette of the British Tommy!' At Ostend, Trent superintended the dispatch of his charge by fast freight, and then took the transcontinental express to Budapest. He was to wait for the car and drive it to its new home. During the few days he was forced to idle in the Hungarian capital, he deplored the fact that new status prevented him from going to the Bristol or the Grand Hotel Royal. He stayed, instead, at an hotel of the second class and encountered little friendliness. English or Americans, it seemed, were still regarded as enemies. He was saved from any violence by Hensey's announcement that he must be fitted for the Temesvar livery. It was no use to rebel. With incredible swiftness the tailor turned it out. Trent looked at himself in the glass with the utmost distaste. The colour scheme was maroon and canary yellow. He likened himself to those who stood before the fashionable stores on Fifth Avenue and opened limousine doors. "'With that livery,' Hensey said impressively, "'you will be safe, you will be respected.' Anthony Trent was too much overwhelmed to answer him. Certainly the Anthony Trent who stared back at him from the mirror was a stranger. He was wearing his hair longer than usual, and a small moustache was already sprouting. The hawk-like look was not evident. He wore instead an air of innocence that was Chaplinesque. Hensey took this look of scrutiny to be one of pride. "'You must have your photograph taken and send it to your best girl,' he laughed. "'She will make all the other ones jealous.' "'Yes.' said the man, who suddenly remembered he was Alfred Anthony of Vauxhall Bridge Road. She'll be fair crazy about it, just like me. But he did not wear it much. He preferred the chance of a row with the populace to his unwished-for splendour. The days of delay gave him leisure to think over coming difficulties. He conceded he had been led away by emotion and enthusiasm when he was betrayed into boasting of his prowess. The two men who had failed had been good men, no doubt, and they were dead. Such a man as Temesvar must know that the brain who originated the attempt at recovery of the draft was still scheming. The Count must constantly be on the watch. And if so, why had he engaged Alfred Anthony with so little investigation? Like most high-grade criminals, Anthony Trent was apt to suspect simple actions when performed by men of the Temesvar type, and impute to them subtle motives. He wished he had been able to take a longer look at the Count, instead of his momentary talk. He reminded Trent very much of the celebrated painting of Francis I, that sensual monarch who was devoted to the chase, masquerades, jewellery, and the pursuit of the fair. But Francis, for all his accomplishments, 
was weak and frivolous, while Temesvar was ruthless and a power, if Lord Rosecarrel was to be believed. Before he left London, Trent had secured what road-maps he could of Hungary, and particularly the Adriatic coast of Dalmatia and Croatia. At his hotel he spread them out on the table and spent hours poring over them. He ventured to ask Mr. Hensey some particulars of the place, and why Count Michael had gone to the expense of importing the chauffeur and the car when he had many machines in his garage, and so many men at his command. Hensey told him the Count needed a clear-eyed, temperate man who could make great speed and make it safely. "'Most of our men,' Hensey declared, "'drink Slivovitsa, a brandy made of plums, and there are people who visit the Count.' whose lives must not be imperiled by recklessness. "'What about the roads?' Trent asked, thinking of the way to the lion and its tremendous wheelbase. "'From Karlstadt to Fiume runs the Maria Luisa road, which is superb. It is one over which you will pass many times. Then there is the Josefina road from Zeng, and many fine highways built not for the Croatian peasants, but for strategic purposes.' You have seen in this war which is past what good roads mean, eh? You hit it on the head, Governor, Trent said cheerfully. What do I go down to Fiume for? To meet passengers from the steamers or from the Count's yacht. It is one hundred and twenty miles from Fiume to Ratna Castle. What could you do that distance in? The road down the mountain to Karlstadt is good but narrow. Alfred Anthony spat meditatively. The old girl will do it in three hours, he said. She'll shake em up a bit inside, but if there aren't no traffic cops or big towns, I can do it in three hours, or a bit more. No, no, Hensy cried nervously. That is suicide. We have been satisfied to take six hours. With horses? Alfred Anthony demanded. Pretty good time with horses, but this is a lion. Hensy sat on the front seat during the long drive and pointed out the path. On the whole, he was a good-natured man, but he did not permit the Count's chauffeur to forget that he was talking to the Count's secretary. Hence he had formerly been a clerk in the estate office of the Temesvar family, and had been promoted to his present position because he was faithful and a good linguist. He was afraid of the Count. Trent could detect a fear of him whenever the name was mentioned. When Hensey warned the new chauffeur to be careful if his employer was in an angry mood, the American demanded the reason. If I do my duty, said the pseudo-mechanic, he can't hurt me. You talk as a child talks, Hensey laughed. He will do as he likes, and as the devils that are in him at the moment. He fears neither God, man, nor devil. Pauline only may mock when he rages. Who is Pauline? Trent asked. The missus? The countess, Hensey said with dignity, is in perpetual retreat with the Ursuline sisters near Vienna. Is Pauline the daughter? His daughters are married, Hensey laughed. Castle Ratna is not a place where it is wise to ask questions. You think because His Excellency was cheerful when you last saw him, he is like that always. I tell you, if Pauline has been unkind, he may visit it on you. I prefer that he does. I am tired of his humours, and you are younger and stronger. You don't mean he might hit me, Trent cried. Hensey seemed to find Trent's anxious manner amusing. "'Most certainly he will,' the secretary assured him. "'But you need not be alarmed. 
He will fling you gold when his temper has spent itself. I'm not going to let any man strike me, Trent said doggedly. It would raise the devil in me, and I might be sorry for it. You would, Hensy said, thinking that the chauffeur meant he might lose his job. Anthony Trent, instead, was thinking that he might, in order to succeed in his venture, have to submit to indignities that would be torture to one of his temperament. It would not be wise to let the secretary know this, so he turned the subject to the woman who dare laugh when the Count was angry. "'Who is Pauline?' he asked. "'She was a skater from the Winter Palace in Berlin. She is beautiful, or she would not be at Castle Ratna. She is clever, or she could not control Count Michael.' who has broken many women's hearts. She is bad, or she would not have driven the countess from her home. For myself, I hate her, and the men and women with whom she fills the place. So they keep a lot of company up there? Company, Hensy replied. There is no such castle in Europe. I have seen life in Buda and Vienna, but up there? You may be sure when the master drinks champagne, the servants will drink Schlivovitze. But do not think they are all Pauline's friends. No, no, the great of the world come there too, and Pauline's friends are banished. You will drive great personages up from Fiume, and you will not know who they are or what their errand. Is the Count a politician? Hence he laughed at good-natured contempt at such a naive query. Not to know Michael Count Temesvar's reputation in the field of world politics was to admit ignorance of all the troubled currents which worried kings and presidents. He was rudely brought back from his lofty attitude by the sudden stopping of the car. He was almost thrown from his seat. "'Look!' Trent cried, pointing to a piece of close-cropped turf. "'A golf green, as I live!' "'What of it?' Hensy snapped. "'What do you know of golf?' "'I used to be a caddy,' Trent lied glibly. "'Who plays there?' "'The Count, because his doctor tells him to. "'I, because I hate it. "'And Pauline said her figure may remain seductive. "'Thank God, there are but nine holes. "'It encourages our master to have one man "'who always plays worse than he. "'Look, that is the castle.' "'Almost under the shadows of Mount Schliemme, the rugged building lay. Around it, nestling at its gates, were many other lesser stone buildings which Hensy told him were stables, dwellings, and outhouses. It was situated in the Sagoria, or land beyond the hills, and had, despite its fine gardens and the green turf of the links, a forbidding air. When the lion was run into its garage, Hensy introduced the new chauffeur to the man with whom he was to live, a man who, with his wife, had one of the cottages outside the castle wall. Peter Sissek, the man, was unfriendly from the start. He resented the importation of a chauffeur with a new car as a slight to his own skill. But as he spoke only Croatian and Hungarian, and Trent understood neither tongue, his grievances were not voluble. End of chapter 8